0: This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at STEP Global Group.
1: And this is Abteen Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management.
0: Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security product or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers.
1: Welcome to the Investment Migration Report with Priya Malik and Upteen Vaziri. Today's special guest is Kim Atterbury, President of Vermilion Consultant and also former Chief Economist at the USCIS. Uh, Kim, welcome. Uh, if you don't mind, maybe give us a couple-minute background uh, what, you, what you did at the USCIS and your experience in being an economist in, in the EB-5 industry.
2: Sure. Thanks for inviting me to participate at Teen. Um, it I became the I was the first economist at USCIS um at headquarters in D.C. And um, I started there in 2009. It was uh, a pretty interesting time to be there. And they didn't really know what to do with me <laughs> at the beginning. They had no idea what I should be doing or anything. Uh, so I, my duties were actually split between um, the Work I was doing in EB five uh, and uh, tasks I did in the um, chief financial officer's office. We uh, there was a lot of different economic uh, work to be done there. Once they kind of figured things out, uh, we have an economist. What do we do with her now? Um, so we regulations which you might know all have to have economic impact, uh, and that had been completed prior to me arriving by, by other people on a part-time basis. One lawyer that had like two more econ classes than anybody else was writing the economic analysis and, and so forth. But the real reason they brought me on was because of problems in the EB-5 program. And uh, that was actually what I worked on that interested, interested me the most. Um, so I got sent out to California to work with the adjudicators And see how they operated and it was kind of scary actually (laughs) a little bit Uh, the California Service Center is a really interesting dark deep hole and uh, so I trained adjudicators who did not have any real business experience uh, to be able to identify problems in submissions under EB-5
1: so if, if, if I'm not mistaken, before USCIS brought a chief economist to verify everyone's job creation, they basically took the word of an economist or the filing. So they didn't really have a way of uh, verifying if the job counts, uh, you know, or the TEAs and the job counts were correct. Um, maybe if you don't mind touching uh, on that and how, you know, that evolved with the USCIS verifying the information that it was provided in the Matter of Hope business plans.
2: Yeah, it was, um, you're right, they didn't have, since USCIS didn't have an economist, they kind of had to take the word of what was being submitted, and um, there was one particular case that that I was specifically brought in to look at at the beginning, and it was a real battle with um, the economist. And uh, I mean, for example, what was happening in this situation was they were hiring one person. Paying the one person two hundred thousand dollars, but they said, "But the average wage for the county is you know ten thousand dollars. So if you divide one by the other, it's the same as hiring ten people." <laughs> you know, it was just some really crazy, funny stuff, funny math going on there. So um, it once I came on board and was able to identify some problems, they. They got a little more um, regular about issuing RFEs and they had an economist to back it up. It, it was, They had a hard time issuing RFEs on the economic analysis without an economist because the outside economist would just hammer them, I mean really, uh, with a lot of terms and so forth that they didn't understand. So uh, that was the role I played in TEAs it was actually really interesting working there um, because back when I first started working there you, um, anybody could submit a TEA letter that aggregated census tracts and so forth. It didn't have to be um, issued by a state and um, we ran into some problems because people weren't using weighted averages and things like that. Uh, the, The numbers were not being used quite properly. And so we started working, going out, working with the states and with the BLS to get some parameters around how TEA should be calculated.
1: And I think, you know, it, it's really relevant the last few weeks we've, we've been recording uh, these shows. Uh, you know, as you know, there's been some tremendous changes that's happened. You know, the, the investment, minimum investment amount went up to five, you know, from 500,000 to 900,000 and the TEA rules became more restrictive. and. November 2019 and then as of uh, a couple weeks ago the federal lawsuit uh, that the magistrate ruled on basically brought the TES back uh, you know back to the uh, the previous rule which was the, you know the, the you know a group of census tracts that equaled 150% of the national average or in the rural area. Uh, Priya, I know you have some some specific questions but, but I'd like to to, to continue asking uh, Kim some some information from inside the USCIS because I know our audience is very curious because they view filings and everything that gets done at the USCIS is a black hole. There's not a lot of transparency. So anything we can do to shed light on uh, that process and how it works and how they adjudicate cases, I think. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So go go ahead, Priya. I'll I'll jump back to to my questions.
0: No, no. Go for it. Go for it. Well,
1: uh, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me, Kim, I know uh, you know the the the, the rule that uh, you know if you have a project that's longer than two years, you get to take uh, you know you, you get to in a regional center context, which by the way as of today it doesn't exist. But you know two weeks ago that program existed, and you know uh, from a regional center perspective, you could count indirect and induced jobs as long as the real estate project is two years or longer. And you know there are ways where you verify if the you know real estate project is longer than two years. And if it's less, then you can only count the direct jobs but not the indirect and induced jobs. Can you give us some context, some history of how that rule came about and how the USCIS you know, accepted or agreed that two years was that magic timeline where you get to count the indirect and induced
2: jobs? In, um, in 2009, um, at at one point, all the EB-5 adjudicators from California came out to D.C., and we all met – um, Sasha Haskell came down from Vermont, and those of you who have been around for a while know that uh, Sasha was really um, the, the engine behind EB-5 within USCIS, um, and I worked with her a lot, uh, every day. And um, so we all got together, and that what came out of that was the Newfeld Memo, came out of that meeting and in that meeting was when they created the if then structure for the the teas that still it's still in their policy guidance today um and also from that was a long discussion about um temporary and transient jobs and what should be allowed to be counted um and that's resulting from that meeting people decided that the the two years you know the two-year time frame for construction um became the the benchmark out of that meeting now i would also point out that it's not all indirect and induced jobs that have to be discounted um if construction's under uh, two years it's just the construction related jobs because the other jobs are are clearly full-time permanent jobs. That's how the model works. It's the whole basis of the model. So um, so we just, when we remove those jobs, we just remove construction and A&E jobs.
1: So, I mean, a lot of people think that, a lot of our audience, you know, probably thinks that this was something that was ruled on by Congress, so it was part of the legislation, but it was, it was rulemaking within the agency. So it's really fascinating to mm-hmm. see that, you know, that, how, how that all came about.
2: Well, and the same goes with uh, targeted employment areas out of the May 2013 memo. um, That was the first time that USCIS ever said that if you're going to aggregate tracts, that you have to have a state letter. That was was news to me. It had never been that way before. But that suddenly became policy after that, that time period, which is causing a real problem right now. Because most states are not actually issuing TEA letters once again, so and, and they've made a conscious decision not to until they get guidance from USCIS, which I seriously doubt is forthcoming. Um, so it's, there's a couple of places that will issue TEA letters, but, but most will not.
0: So, Kim, from my understanding, um, they use a lot of, well, they use a formula to decide um, about job creation within the regional center program. So, how did that first come about?
2: The um, the models that we use to determine job creation and economic impact are based on formulas. Um, they're geographic, specific uh, for different locations, and they're not... Produced by USCIS, they're produced by other parts of the government, of the government and private entities. Um, and when I worked at USCIS, we actually invited the chief of the RIMS II division from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, that produce they produce the RIMS 2 multipliers that a lot of us use to calculate economic impact she came out to the California Service Center and provided some training for adjudicators. And that was really interesting, I think. And I, I, I really believe that that was the point when adjudications really improved significantly um, because they understood what they were looking at a little bit better.
1: And, and there's, a, there's a rumor that, you know, used to flood around that, you know, with, with the various different programs, the Implant and RIMS2, and, I think there's a few other ones that the preference of the USCIS was RIMS two. Can you can you comment on that? If if they use other input output models or RIMS two was kind of the, the the main one that the USCIS used to verify job creation.
2: That's that's a funny rumor because I started it. Um, okay. we, <laughs> we, I I said uh, during many stakeholders meetings that I preferred RIMS two and and there's a reason because. If they provide the multipliers, you can, you can check the math very, very easily. With Implan and Remy and uh, the other models that are software-based, you can't really check their math. It's a black box that you can't see inside of. And so that's why I started that rumor that we preferred RIMS too, because I did. And uh, so when I submit an economic impact report to USCIS, I include all of the RIMS, the whole thing, even the ones that we didn't use. That way, I figured that the adjudicators could at least maybe even go look at those RIMS to help them check the math on something else. Because RIMS, you could run the model with MPLAN and REMs and and do a comparison on jobs they're really pretty close because they all use the same underlying data and so it's if unless they're doing some funny math inside of uh, their implant model or something that the numbers come out to be pretty much the same
1: yeah typically i mean i think when you submit a project exemplar you know you're pretty close to the same number that the uscis comes out with because you know the, the jobs numbers are preset based on census data and I think um, maybe for our audience, some of our audience are, are are brand new to EB-5, and they're not 100% sure how the whole jobs analysis calculation works. If you don't mind, maybe just take a couple of minutes and kind of take a step back and explain the direct, indirect, and induced, what they all mean, and how the jobs multipliers work, and how they work from different census tracts, and why they're different from, let's say, if you're doing a construction project in California versus New York or Florida. Sure,
2: sure. The, um Geography matters a lot. And the way you're supposed to determine the geography that you use is based on where the inputs of production will come from. And, you know, that's difficult because there's not a lot of, you know, two by fours produced in Manhattan. And so you need an area bigger than just a county. And so the way we do it is we look at commuting patterns uh, to determine the, the most likely area where inputs of production will come from. Some people do it other ways. The bigger the region, the bigger the geography, the higher the multipliers, generally, not always, but generally. So it used to be that some people would try to use, like, the whole state of California instead of just the commuting pattern for Los Angeles or something like that. Um, USCIS clamped down on that quite a few years ago. Um, so, first you look at the geography, we use commuting patterns, and then you look at usually two phases, construction, development, um, and then operations. So, under the construction phase, we typically, and most economists, look at the construction budget, the full development budget, and we categorize all those line items from the budget, and then assign them to a, a RIMS code uh, which then has a specific multiplier associated with it and that's the formula you were mentioning priya it's pretty simple math and out pops three three jobs numbers there's other numbers that come out of that too um that direct impacts indirect and induced direct are the ones that happen basically right at the project site that things that are are going on be either from construction or operations that are happening right there. Indirect are the things that need to come into the project site. So if you have two-by-fours going into the building, the people that made those two-by-fours or the doors or the windows from somewhere else, those are the indirect impacts. And then induced impacts come from when all those workers, be they direct or indirect workers, go out and spend their paychecks and buy food and cars and those kinds of things. So it's 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 the whole picture when you're looking at, at all three types of uh, jobs.
1: And and when you pull up, you know, the, the census data, um, what, what, you know, if you're creating jobs. Um, let's say in midtown Manhattan, it's gonna be different than if you're in rural Florida. Why is it that a million dollars in hard construction activity generates a different number of jobs, let's say in, in New York versus Florida?
2: Because they have different um, economic baselines. They, they have different industries uh, in the different geographies. So um, Manhattan would be very service oriented. Um, as would DC also, uh, where somewhere like Ohio, uh, they have a lot of manufacturing. So uh, you would see really high construction multipliers in places like Ohio, much higher than DC. Um, In fact, a lot higher, it's crazy.
1: And I think it's fascinating because a lot of people don't know that there are people within the government that keep track of all this data. And all this data is useful for various other parts of the government. And I think for our audience, it's 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 good to know that you know th- these aren't just made of numbers. These are numbers that come in for, from the census data and other other parts of the government, and these are pretty accurate, you know, for the most part.
2: They really are, and it's kind of interesting um, to to back up to finish uh, what I was saying about the two phases: so construction and then operations. When we look at operations we generally use revenue want you know just a 12 month slice of revenue to see the impact of operations and so again we put the numbers in and associate it with the proper multiplier from rims and we get direct indirect and induced uh impacts from that when you look at the direct jobs that are created from just the model the direct jobs, so that would be the people working in a hotel and, you know, if the hotel was the project, it's pretty darn close to the actual number of people that are actually working in the hotel. So, you know, you can compare the real numbers of workers to what the model says, and it's pretty accurate.
0: And, you know, from an investor standpoint, because I work with investors on a daily basis, and so when I'm showing them projects and they're asking questions, a question that always comes up is their concern with job creation. Have you seen a lot or many instances where um, there are projects where the adequate number of jobs are not created for some reason? Or is that something that happens on a more rare instance? Or how have you seen that a lot?
2: Um, the projects that my clients do um, always have Plenty of jobs. Have not run into it myself. I have seen it when I've been brought in to troubleshoot uh, after the fact on a project. Um, yeah, that there. Sometimes there are problems with that, and I think um, maybe it's becoming less of a problem nowadays. But years ago, people would very much oversubscribe projects. Um, over-inflate the number of jobs and then find out that you know they were in trouble because they you know didn't get the tenants that they thought they were going to get or the revenue wasn't what they thought the revenue was you know going to be their forecasting was off or god forbid come in under budget <laughs> on a construction budget that's that's Normally that's such a great thing. And I always cringe when I hear, oh, we've got the value engineering is coming in under budget. And I'm like, don't do that, please.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so uh, we, we really count on that. But you know, one of the things that we do is uh, we look at projects as they're going along. You know, We take snapshots of where the budget is, where they're spending so we can calculate those actual jobs as we go along and know that we don't have trouble.
1: And I remember when I first uh, started in the EB-5 industry about 2012, um, many economists back then believed that you couldn't do multifamily projects because they didn't think that they created enough jobs. And I used to argue with that and say, well, you know, the same way hotels create construction jobs, you know, a $200 million high-rise apartment also creates construction jobs. And, you know, there were so many different methodologies. I remember tenant occupancy and, you know, people try to uh, get credit for jobs by building an office building, even though they moved the jobs from an office building across the hall. I know this is really ancient times, but do you mind just giving a a couple of minutes about your experience with with some of those methodologies and you know tenant occupancy and uh, some of the other uh, methodologies?
2: Yeah, the uh, the tenant occupancy, uh, the the memos and so forth. The policy on that actually came out shortly after I left USC. I, USCIS, but the I was the one that brought up the issue because we were seeing a lot of people that were building, uh, you know, like a shopping center and that had restaurants and retail and all of these kinds of things, and they were taking the jobs from the retail space and the restaurants, but they weren't operating those. That's that's not what they were doing. Their business was leasing space to uh, other entities that then created jobs. So the way you're supposed to do that is use a leasing multiplier, not a retail or a restaurant multiplier. Um, so I brought it up, they ended up putting a lot more to it and the whole being able to prove that you weren't moving jobs from this part of town to that part of town. and and all of those things, I, I think it was easier just for people to stay away from trying to count those jobs and just use the leasing multiplier.
1: You know, um, a lot of the, um, the difficulties and, and, and challenges with the USCIS and all the requirements that, are, uh, that we have to deal with today came by, you know, the USCIS had the honor system and you could tell them whatever jobs you created and I'm sure people took advantage of that, hence why the USCIS then and now has an economist. Um, did you see any instances where people would just, you know, make it up crazy number of jobs and just that the, the, you have to verify and that the, the real jobs weren't anywhere near what they claimed?
2: Yes, uh, many times. Some, some really fancy uh, footwork was happening in some of the economic analyses. Um, and one of the big things that was happening was inf- just over-inflating budgets. I saw a, a hotel that had a, um, I think it was like a $15 million carpet budget. (laughs) That's that's a lot of carpet. (laughs) So that's why USCIS requires you to show the detailed construction budget now. It's, uh, you know, those kinds of things were happening on a regular basis or taking five years of revenue and counting all five years of revenue well those aren't new jobs each year net new that's why we have to do net new revenue and uh, things like that so you know people were trying to do get get away with a lot of things and including using outdated multipliers that were higher when the newer multipliers were coming down um those those things happen regularly
0: how do you feel that your position at USCIS, your position as former chief economist, how does that inform your current position at Vermilion Consulting?
2: Well, it it informs everything we do. Um, first of all, I know those people, <laughs> at least some of them, and uh, the folks at the AAO and and headquarters and other you know attorneys and so forth they they were my co-workers and colleagues and I respect them and I wouldn't want to submit something to them that I didn't feel confident about um, but I also the way we write things and the way we present things are specifically to make their job easier and we don't get paid by the word. So our, our business plans and our economic analyses tend to be a lot shorter than everybody else's because we don't need to inundate USCIS adjudicators with 200 pages of stuff. Uh, so it, it's very important, I think, to keep your audience in mind and keep everything focused directly for the adjudicator. I know a lot of people like to use the business plans as a marketing piece, but the real purpose of the business plan is to present your case to USCIS.
1: So, Kim, I know a lot of points of contention uh, where it's, you know, there's the, the industry has been split up and, you know, hence we're here today where the regional center program has expired. Uh, really started on because of the definitions of TEAs. I think um, you know, as, 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 as many know, the definition of you know, TEA is a, a census track or a group of census tracts where together uh, they're uh, equal to 150% of the national unemployment rate. And you know, in the previous rule, which is now the, 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 the current rule, uh, it didn't matter how many census tracks you, you created and you can, you know, add you know, 150 or more census tracks to get to the desired result. And hence, there were many projects in Midtown Manhattan, for example, that qualified. Um, can you just, you know, talk about that and, and, you know, what, what, in your practice, what you would, um, you know, recommend to to developers, uh, you know, or, or regional center operators they do on creating and and figuring out uh, target employment areas.
2: Yeah, I, this it's been kind of a crazy couple of weeks because we have been thrown back to the to the old rules just as we were getting used to the new rules. So it that's that's been fun. Um, you know targeted employment areas get everybody very worked up <laughs> and very upset. And and I understand um, where certain members of Congress might think that a, a TEA made up of a hundred census tracts um, is bending the rules or something like that. But the point is that unemployment is based on where people live and most people do not live and work in the same census tract most of us drive some large or small distance some people cross state lines county lines uh, you know it, it to me it seems a little bit arbitrary to say you know that these tiny little tracts it has to be you know you have to locate a business within an area where people live that are unemployed that seems not like destined to have a a good outcome for a business but um those are the rules we have i think that um aggregating census tracts is um, can be a risky thing to do if you aggregate 100 census tracts to make a tea so it really depends on the geography and you know where you are located for example in manhattan a lot of people would aggregate census tracts and connect through central park and go up into harlem to capture unemployment now if you were an unemployed person living in harlem and there was a job available further south in manhattan does it not make sense that that person might travel to south manhattan to be employed as there's a huge transportation infrastructure to get them there so i i think the rules are the rules and they will be whatever they tell us they are and i don't have a dog in the fight i will calculate them however they tell me to but I still think they're arbitrary.
1: And I agree with you. I think Kim. You know, the whole point of this EB five program is you have. You know, at least the regional center program is that you have a region, and you're creating employment, you're creating jobs, and economic activity for that region. So even under the old rule, like like you mentioned, certain senators and certain uh, people were critical that you know developers are building luxury product in mid- Midtown Manhattan. And that's a you know it's a it's a ritzy area. It's a it's a affluent area. But I agree with you. I mean, those jobs, the people that are working, in those, even if you're you know, building condos that are $5 million condos, the people that are creating the jobs or you know, the people that are employed, being employed at those places are from all over New York. There, you know, They could be from Jersey. They could be from Bronx. They could be from Harlem. They could be from Staten Island. So what, what the program was intended to do was actually really doing, but there was still criticism, hence what, you know, the contentions and where we are today.
2: Yes, that's right, and I don't think any person has ever gone, "Oh my look, there's a census track line. I'm not going to step over that to get a job <laughs> it, it you know I think we have to you know if if the purpose of the program really is to create jobs and for Americans, then let's create jobs and not be arbitrary about it
0: yeah, and speaking about. Um, you know, going back to the old way of doing things, obviously there's been a lot that's gone on with EB-5 in the past couple of weeks in terms of the bearing case and then the regional center program expiring on the 30th. Um, are you seeing, have you been, have you worked with a lot of individuals who decide to do the direct EB-5 program instead of the regional center program? And if so, what types of clients do you feel that that's best suited for?
2: Yes, we do work with a number of people that um, are using the direct EB-5 program. I don't usually work specifically with direct investors. There are a lot of direct investors that um, come into a project where they pool, They still pool uh, their investments into... Uh, into a, a single project. Um, so, again, my, I don't work with direct investors. I work with usually the the developer that's putting direct together projects. Yes, yes. But I, you know, I think that they're it's well suited for a lot of people. If you have a good EB five, <clears throat> excuse me, immigration attorney, they can put together a direct investment that really functions very much like. Um, a regional center investment, you know, with the main difference being the way the jobs are counted.
1: And and Kim, you know, I'm glad that we actually segued into direct uh, versus uh, regional center projects. Uh, Priya and I actually did a a show on that just a week ago, and uh, there's definitely a lot of people that are interested in, 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 you know, the differences between direct and and the regional center program, but one of the main uh, differences is how you you calculate jobs and how what jobs you can you can you can um, get credit for. Um, you know, for example, if you're building a hundred million dollar multifamily project, you may have less direct jobs than you know a, a small five hundred thousand dollar franchise restaurant, let's say a Pizza Hut. So, um, can you kind of talk a little bit about the, the different ways where? Jobs can be calculated, uh, you know, from a project to project uh, specific basis on a on regional center program versus direct.
2: Yeah, sure. The with direct projects, they're better suited for projects that have operations that create jobs because generally you are not going to be looking at construction jobs, development jobs um, for direct investors because you cannot use the impact model, as we were discussing earlier, where with the regional center investors, we take that budget and we use the RIMS model and calculate the jobs. With direct investors, we have to have W-2 employees, actual employees. So that generally comes from the operation of whatever that is. So multifamily, probably not well-suited for direct investment because there's not a lot of direct jobs that are created, unless it's a multifamily that has, you know, super high end with lots of like concierge services or, you know, other services offered, maybe that would work. Probably not though. Uh, so you would be looking at something like you mentioned franchise operations. Um, as long as there were enough full-time employees, uh, a lot, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of medical related, um, opportunities, uh, for direct dental and medical, uh, related projects that I've seen, um, trying to think of what other kinds I've seen it even work with a hotel. Um, hotels have of course, lots and lots of direct jobs. Um, I've seen it work also where you blend when, when the regional center program was still working, where you would have a blend of direct investors and regional center investors in the same project. So those, those can be pretty interesting as well. And so it's, you know, the documentation is really interesting, because for direct investors, you don't have an economic analysis, for regional center investors, you do. But you almost need to submit both for both kinds of investors. So you, you can show USCIS, you're not double counting any jobs. So uh, that I think there's a lot of opportunity for direct. It's just a little bit more difficult to make it happen.
1: So, Kim, I know many uh, investors and regional centers are focused on real estate type projects because that's what investors are very familiar with in other countries. But, you know, um, are you seeing a lot of projects, you know, in the past and, and recently that were manufacturing projects or projects that are not real estate focused?
2: Yes. In fact, we have developed a specialty of working on unusual projects like that. They're a little bit more difficult sometimes than real estate. First of all, you have to communicate with USCIS in a different way, because they are used to seeing real estate projects. Um, When you start working in manufacturing projects or or anything else, oil and gas uh, development, uh, mineral development, mining, those kinds of things. You really have to explain everything very, very clearly to USCIS. Um, And this can be, the economic analysis can be a little bit difficult because if it is truly a new and unique industry in a certain area, there won't be multipliers for it. So if you start the very first bleach manufacturing plant in Austin, Texas, there's not a multiplier for it. It's zeros all the way across so you have to get a little more creative um, and sometimes you have to go out and even get a bigger geography like use a whole state geography for your multipliers just to find you know get to the level where you can find another industry a similar industry so um, we like to work on those they're very interesting i know about all kinds of industries recycled wood products and, and bleach i mentioned and um iron ore, and all kinds of crazy things. Garnet mining one
1: time. You, you know, um, I think uh, if you're building a $500 million uh, apartment complex or a $500 million condo project, because there are not very many operational jobs, it's going to be difficult to do any of those projects from a direct uh, standpoint. I would think direct may become actually more popular for manufacturing and other type of projects that actually have a lot of direct um uh, direct employees have you seen that so far and what are your thoughts on on those type of projects for, for direct investment for, for our audience?
2: I think those are great projects for direct so far most I think people are trying to get their bearings and understand this, this new environment that we're operating in um, so I, I think we will see more of that and more creativity in how to put these together. Um, but so far, not very many. Right now, it's mainly franchise-type operations.
1: So, Kim, I know um, I know uh, one of the uh, suggestions that was made, you know, to, to cut out the issues of uh, gerrymandering on TEAs was to, you know, have EB five TEAs be you know equal or the same as the opportunities on maps. Can you touch up touch base on that, what your thoughts are on that, if that ever made any sense?
2: Yeah, I think it does uh, make a lot of sense. And even before that, uh, there were other programs, federal programs that had uh, more uh, qualifying uh, components, such as the enterprise zone program from many years ago, uh, which was one I worked in, I think it would be really Great. Again, going back to the intent of Congress, if their intent is really to get this EB-5 capital into areas, rural areas or poor urban areas, then they might want to think about some other qualifying components other than just unemployment. Um, It's a couple of of issues with that. Number one, when I worked at USCIS, we had this... request out of New Orleans because it was still post-Katrina, and it was impossible to get a TEA in New Orleans because the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics actually stopped calculating data down there for some time after Katrina hit. So you couldn't even get a TEA in a place like that that clearly needed investment. Another big problem is that the current TEA rules um, with metropolitan statistical areas, there are counties included in MSAs that are called outlying counties as opposed to central counties. And this really harms some counties that are actually really rural. For example, Pawnee County, Oklahoma has about 16,000 people in it and it is an outlying county of the Tulsa MSA it it has very low unemployment because over 50% of the people over 16 years old uh, are out of the labor force they are not willing and able to work um, because of the tribal influences there and the population they don't they aren't looking for work. So you can't get a TEA, you can't calculate a TEA, but this area really needs investment. So it's not rural, it's not high unemployment, but if you looked at poverty or workforce participation, chronic abandonment, you know, a lot of these other uh, qualifiers, then you could get a TEA there in an area that really could use the help.
1: That, that was actually going to be one of my next questions. I think for a targeted employment area, there are two definitions. One, uh, a, a census tract or a group of census tract that together equal 150% of the national average. And then the second one is the rural exemption, which I think more and more projects we're seeing now in the rural areas. But the definition of rural is, as you mentioned, a, a city that has less than 20,000 population. But the caveat is that city cannot be part of an MSA. And there are many, You know, as you mentioned, there are many cities that are outskirts of you know you know for example outside of Dallas two hours outside of Dallas but they're still part of a county that's in the metropolitan statistical area MSA and hence they they uh, cease to qualify as rural. Um, I think one one po- possible suggestion for the USCIS or Congress is to just make it city that has twenty thousand population not have the caveat of the MSA because a lot of rural areas or a lot of rural projects get excluded they can't get a TEA because they happen to be you know, two hours away from the MSA, so they're included in the MSA.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, another great example is Crosby County, Texas. It has a, fewer than a thousand people, but it's part of the Lubbock MSA. And so, it, you know, it's that doesn't make sense to me. That's clearly rural, you know. But with the way the definitions are now, it, it's that's how it pans out. Now, the interesting thing is that when Congress wrote the EB five Law, MSAs didn't have these outlying counties. That's not how they were constructed back then, and we didn't have micropolitan statistical areas either. Uh, so I think that maybe they need to take a different look at that um, with the new way that Census Bureau designates those counties.
1: So that's just a rule that's out outdated that you know from 31 years ago that just needs to be revisited, right?
2: That's right.
0: And do you also think it would be good then for them to, for Congress to maybe consider, you know, if they ever were to change the TEA definitions again, consider other qualifiers like um, sort of more economic qualifiers like poverty levels, um, rather than just focusing on population or unemployment rates?
2: Yes, I do. I think that they're could be a, you know a number of different qualifiers. Um, the way the enterprise program enterprise zone program did it, I think there were five or six different qualifiers that you could look at and the unemployment rate, 150 percent unemployment rate was one of them. Um, but you had to qualify like on two of six or two of five or some, something to that effect uh just to give more flexibility but i also think that congress ought to allow maybe uscis to use common sense for instance in the situation with katrina um, to be able to know that something bad has happened and to be able to say okay this is a you know a temporary tea we're going to designate it as a tea for x amount of time because it clearly needs help
1: so so maybe some requirement that has uh you know a national emergency um ramifications you know or even you know some something to allow troubled businesses post the pandemic to to qualify you know jobs that they're saving i mean, i think that's something that you know congress should definitely look at
2: i think that would be a great idea
1: So, Kim, I think a lot of our audience are from other countries, and they're evaluating, you know, not just EB-5 program, but various different investment immigration uh, programs. And, you know, as they're doing their homework and they're watching this program and other types of uh, programs or other, you know, research, what are some of the important things that they should look at, uh, you know, to make sure that they're, you know, covering all the bases or doing their homework when it comes to their TEAs and, and jobs creation? So when they're looking at various different EB five programs, whether it's project direct or regional center, yeah, yeah, as project as a whole.
2: Well, I would definitely look at the TEA first, uh, very carefully. Um, you know, with the the rules changing right now, it's it's kind of difficult to uh, know what what applies and what's even going to fly with USCIS right now because if states are not issuing letters then that means to get a TEA letter, you have to have somebody like me write it. And will USCIS accept it? We don't know. We have no idea. So all we can do is hope for the best. The data, you know, really the data is the data. And as long as you're backing it up, USCIS should accept it, but we don't know. Um, so I would always look at the TEA first because with, without a solid TEA, you don't know if you're investing the right amount. Um, jobs. Definitely, um, I I would recommend getting it, taking a thorough look at the economic analysis, and potentially getting a second opinion uh, of a highly qualified EB five immigration attorney. And not all immigration attorneys are EB five immigration attorneys. Uh, can the attorney can look at it and generally know if it's if it's good or not? Um, but I would. I would just make sure because there are there are a lot of service providers out there, and and they are not all created equal.
1: Another technical thing I think, um, from a, from a TEA standpoint, um, the USCIS essentially um, gave the authority to to calculate years to each states, and some states, you know, essentially, uh, you know, passed that authority up to the county judges and, and the mayor. So uh, maybe we'll talk about. Um, you know, verifying who has the authority and is that, you know, is that letter from the mayor's office sufficient if that, you know, the authority has been passed down from the, from the governor's office down to the mayors and the county judges?
2: That you're right. And as far as I know, the only state that's done that is Texas. And uh, so it would be, uh, it could be any local level official county or city um, that, produces a letter. Um, I was trying to think if no, there's no other states. One of the things that always I always wondered about was um, one state, USCIS said that to be able to, for a state to produce TEA letters, they had to submit a letter to USCIS and tell them that they were going to do that. Like Rick Perry wrote the letter from Texas informing USCIS that, it, that the designating authorities are these local entities. Other states also submitted letters to USCIS saying who's the designating designated TEA authority for that state. But not all 50 states submitted a letter. Some states never submitted that letter, yet the states produced TEA letters. So I was always a little nervous that USCIS might go back and go, oh well, that state never sent the original letter, and therefore none of their TEA letters are valid. Haven't seen that; that never has come to pass. But uh, it's important to to know who the designating authority is.
1: And, and there was also talks about in, in some of the legislations about you know essentially making the USCIS in charge of the uh, you know issue in letters and you know we know some some challenges and some positives and some negatives from from that can you can you touch 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 on that
2: well yes i mean i think that would be a terrible idea just because USBIS is so far behind and you know that would be another form they would have to have a form they'd have to have a fee they'd have to have a regulation um i when i submitted comments on the uh Proposed rule when USCIS was floating their new TEA rules, I had suggested that USCIS produce one set of data. This is the data that we're going to accept, just one set. And for every tract in the United States, it's really easy. We, you know, we we could even provide it for you if you wanted. Um, and then that way we were all working from one data set. And I think it would have been easier for USCIS to adjudicate TEA letters if they were just looking at one set of numbers instead of a bunch of different sets of numbers. But they declined my idea, and uh, I, I think it's made it more difficult for them overall because now they have to figure out what data set you're using and if it's valid or not.
1: And on that same regard, opportunity zone maps, they're all set in stone and you know they're all published and you can go see exactly what areas and opportunity zones and what areas aren't. And because the, the governors of each state have to designate those areas, there's not a lot of gerrymandering going on. So those are actually really the distressed areas that, that that need the that need the jobs and you know that's really been the point of contention contention and why we are where we are today where the regional center program has expired. But one, one idea would be to make the maps equal the Opportunity Zone maps, which are the distressed areas. And another idea we floated around is, well, you know, at, the, at, the, at the core of it, Opportunity Zone program and the EB-5 program are both similar, creating jobs for areas that need the jobs the most, or, you know, hence distressed areas. But in one way, you get tax benefits. The other one, you're, you're an immigrant, you don't, you're not necessarily paying taxes, you get immigration benefits. So maybe expand the Opportunity Zone programs to do what EB-5 does. But, you know, that's, those, are, those are for
2: mm-hmm. members of
1: Congress to decide enough for us.
2: Yeah, and I think that would be a really good idea. And that would also incorporate the issue we were talking about earlier, where if a governor could designate it, then they could use their judgment in case you had a, a hurricane situation or whatever. had a particular area that really needed the help like New Orleans did. So I, I think that would solve a lot of problems.
0: I think especially with direct programs, there are a lot of investors that come to us and they just say, well, is there a map that I can just look at and see what the TEA areas are and I can choose where I want to set up my business or what I want to do. So I think that would make it a lot easier for even for investors who are doing direct programs or doing their own businesses.
2: Yes, I think so. And a, a word of warning on that. Uh, I know there are some websites out there uh, that have maps with TEA data. Um, We've found mistakes in those before. Um, so, and they're only using one data set, and you can use a variety. And whenever we check a TEA for anyone, we check every possible uh, data set to see if it will qualify. But they sometimes those maps do have mistakes. So people should be careful right. using something like that.
1: And, and the other part is some some places that do qualify for TEA, they cease to qualify for TEA next year because unemployment data changes and and various different data changes. Hence, why you know the opportunity zone maps are a lot more consistent because they're they're locked up for ten years. Um, and I know in some of the legislati- legislations that we looked at for both the House and the Senate, there were some uh, you know some attempts to. Uh, grandfather a TEA, so when you do a project maybe that's locked in for a year or two years or five years what are your thoughts on on some of those uh you know proposed legislations
2: i i like that idea i think you know when you're financing a a large project like that to have some predictability in in your future would be really useful um and the data can shift i mean especially this last year it can shift really rapidly so um predictability would, would be very good for, for developers and, and more fair for investors.
1: And then real quickly, I know the the rule that came into effect in uh, November 21st, 2019, uh, made the, the current TEA rule more restrictive, and now we're back to the old rule. Can you just touch base on what, what changed in, on November 21st, 2019, in terms of what you could use as a TEA and what you couldn't?
2: Yes, the TEA definition changed to uh, restrict TEAs in size to include only the project census tract and any directly adjacent census tracts. Uh, You can use any or all of the adjacent census tracts in calculating the weighted average for the TEA, Um, and that includes catty corner uh, tracts, tracks across waterways uh, and tracks across state lines, which is a, a really great um, addition uh, and clarification because before we were never really sure if you could go across a state line, um, especially when you have one state designating a TEA, for instance, Maryland designating a TEA, but their tracks are you know, right next to Washington DC tracks. So can you include D.C. tracks in a Maryland TEA and vice versa? It was never entirely clear.
1: And, you know, I think the pendulum swing, you know, from a TEA rule that you can include any number of census tracts with, without uh, any requirement by USCIS to, you know, the egg and the yolk model that you just mentioned. But, you know, I think that became so restrictive that many projects, even very distressed areas, didn't qualify. One way to, to, you know, essentially cut out the gerrymandering was California had its own rule where you can only put together 12 census tract. They didn't care if they were adjacent or not. You know, they had to, I guess, all touch, but they didn't all have to be the egg and the yolk. That was, a that was a I thought, a good way to meet in the middle. Can you can you uh, comment on that?
2: Sure. It, it is a good way to meet in the middle. It would limit... Uh, you know, ridiculously large census tracts. I also think it's completely arbitrary, as we talked about earlier, that people will drive more than 12 census tracts to go to a job. So, um, but at this point, I would rather have a program than not. And so whatever they choose to do, that is fine with me. <laughs> I would just like to have the program back.
1: I think I think what you, you, uh, you hit the nail, on the head because a lot of people in our in our industry they just you know have all these crazy wish lists and they fail to realize that you know we we only have so much input. At the end of the day, members of Congress, more importantly members of the Senate, have to agree on these, these rules. We can make suggestions, we can say what makes business sense, what makes sense for investors all day long, but if there is no will on their part to want to wanna change that rule, there's nothing we can do. But if, if you had your perfect wish list from a TEN job creation requirements, as, as members of Senate are negotiating probably today or as we speak, to try to save the EB five program, the regional center program, bring it back, what would be some of your wish list items that you think would make it easier for developers, investors, and USCIs?
2: Uh, well, I think you know using California's approach would I think be a good middle ground um, for for TEAs. Um, I I would really love to see the EV5 program made permanent. uh, So we quit having these constant drama cycles. Um, I think that we need to address the visa numbers and how that works, or there's really no point in having a program. Um, And, you know, as far as the investment amount differentiation, I, I don't, I think it's a very large differentiation and it ends up overly harming non-TEA areas. But again, I would rather have a program back than argue with Congress about it. So <laughs> it's, uh, that's kind of what it boils down to for me.
1: So Kim, I know you mentioned that, uh, you know, when you use the RIMS two or, uh, or implant uh, multiplier, even though it uses net operating income, and census data to come up with those jobs at the end of the day those jobs end up being pretty equal to what the actual jobs would be and even you know with with, uh with teas that you know draw you know a map of 150 gerrymandered census tracks to get midtown manhattan projects to work for the for the most part the the intent of the program is still uh it's still happening which is jobs are being created even though there may be million dollar condos in midtown manhattan Jobs are being created for Staten Island, for New Jersey, for Harlem, from Bronx. So the intent of the program is happening. Maybe you know a, a couple percent here and there. But I'd like to hear your input on how uh, you know to improve the program and 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 not nitpick on, on the details that uh, I think everyone's focused on.
2: Well, I, I agree. I, you know, jobs jobs are jobs, and nobody's going to build a five hundred million dollar project in the middle of a cornfield. So I, you know it's uh, i think we need to i would love for congress to step back and think about what their intent really was and i believe it was job creation and you know while they wanted the jobs to get into rural or high unemployment areas jobs are still jobs and people will still drive to go to work and um, i just would love for them to think about the the differential in having the non-TEA amount be as high as it is, and how, how that harms non-TEA areas um, disproportionately. And so maybe, maybe even go crazy in, this would be a crazy thought, how about not have TEAs? How about have one investment amount and create jobs everywhere?
1: You know, that, that brings up a great point. That was, that was my next question. I think, you know, 31 years ago when this program got created, I think there was only Canada and Australia maybe that did a similar program. Today we have over 40 competing programs. And, you know, it's, it's been estimated about $40 billion in foreign direct investment has come through the regional center program, 3B5. And those dollars today we're losing to other countries. These are dollars that could come in and generate economic activity, could create jobs. These are people that are paying taxes, that are coming here from other countries, creating businesses, and some of the you know, best and brightest from other countries. Um, what are your thoughts on, 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 on not nitpicking and getting more people in here through the EB-5 program?
2: I, I agree completely. I mean, these are the kinds of people that you, you really want to encourage to immigrate to the United States. And we do compete with other countries for this. Uh, that was actually one thing I brought up in my public comments to USCIS uh, on the, the proposed regulation that maybe they should have uh, done a little bit of analysis on price elasticity of demand before they just determined these new investment amounts to see what that might do to our competitiveness in this arena worldwide. And I, I believe they could have found the data to, to do that, but they they again declined to uh, consider my analysis.
1: <laughs> Priya, I know you have some final thoughts well, before. yeah, uh, I
0: think it'll be interesting to see what happens when reauthorization comes around. We've been hearing a lot of things about whether the price is going to go back up to 900000 or somewhere in between maybe $700,000, I know that you know there's no argument there that at 500 it's just so much more affordable for so many more people and that's been proven um since the numbers dropped drastically when the price went up to 900,000 and then again now that it's back down to 500,000 we're seeing such a huge demand right away um so i think yeah if if they do want a program that's going to create jobs it's going to bring money into the us economy I think price is something that they're going to definitely have to think about.
1: Well, Kim, thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, your your insights have been very, very helpful for us, especially and then also more, more importantly for our audience. And thank you again for, uh, for taking the time to be with us.
2: My pleasure. It was nice to chat with you both. Thank you so much.
1: To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya P-R-E-E-Y A at stepglobalgroup.com or at Team Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn
2: and YouTube. Thank you for listening.